0: This morning's passage comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. It can be found on page 888 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him, bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took his mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up. And followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Welcome again to Faith Church. Uh, My name is Godwin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to continue in this great series in the Gospel of Mark. I'm really excited to continue along with you. Okay, many of you know I uh, became a Christian during my college years, though I grew up in a vibrant Christian context. So my parents were Christians. I attended a Christian school. I was in Bible studies. I went to youth group growing up. And so everyone thought I was a Christian, uh, including myself. However, I was not a Christian. I was not genuinely converted until Later. And I didn't know it until my early years of college. All of a sudden, I encountered a bout of depression. Why was I depressed? Well, because I was a small fish in a very big University of Michigan pond. Okay. Because I didn't have a girlfriend. Because I didn't feel fi- fulfilled. Excuse me. And so um, I, I was experiencing all of this kind of just difficulty internally. And, and so I would consider myself, at least for a season, a few months, early college, to be depressed or struggling. But, you know, my biggest problem wasn't social engagement or academic achievement or anything like that. My biggest problem was I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> my biggest problem is that I was turning a legit desire into an ultimate need. That's why I was depressed. What I didn't realize, at least initially, is that my ultimate need is provision for my sin against a holy and wrathful God. My whole life up to that point was fine-tuned to be all about myself, and I was looking for attention from other people. And this was my great sin. But it was in recognizing this very sin, the sin of pride, that's what brought me to know Jesus. So, friends, let me ask you a question. What is your deepest personal need. What is your deepest personal need? Now, how might the world answer that interesting question? Well, they might say our deepest need is fulfillment, to feel full and not empty, to grow fully into yourself. And so what I'm talking about here is self-fulfillment and self-actualization, you know, from the media to New York Times bestsellers, to larger educational institutions, to sectors, of our government. I mean, everyone is reinforcing this thinking that our deepest need is fulfillment. But friends, what does the Bible teach about this? What does the Bible say from its opening chapters to its closing chapters? Well, our deepest personal need isn't a lack of fulfillment. It's a lack of righteousness. We have a righteousness deficit, don't we? And so therefore, our biggest problem is our sin against God. God. That's what this passage is about this morning. Here's the main point. You'll see it on your screen. Main point of the passage in this sermon. Let it serve as an anchor as you're kind of, as we're walking through this passage. Jesus is the son of man who forgives sins and the good doctor who mends sinners. I'll say it again. Jesus is the son of man who forgives sins and the good doctor who mends sinners. As you know, Jesus is the main character of Mark's gospel. We've already learned at his coronation event, which was his baptism, that he's God's beloved son. He's come to be king, but he's also come to suffer, which is a surprise. And we saw last week that he doesn't just have the title of king, he actually exercises authority as king. We saw his kingly authority over sickness and demons and uncleanness. We saw his kingly authority in his teaching, in his preaching. And now we see his kingly authority as it relates to sin. So we've got two stories before us. Each of those stories will be one of our points. Here's the first. Jesus is the son of man who forgives sins. He's the son of man who forgives sins. Now we see actually five stories ahead, chapter two, a little bit in chapter three, and they each portray how Jesus's royal authority is tested and challenged. So there's kind of this three-step pattern in each. Jesus, first of all, does something surprising, The scribes challenge him, and then finally Jesus responds in a way that silences them. We see that five times in these five stories. Now, what holds the first two stories together is the emphasis on Jesus' authority to forgive sins. What holds the last three stories together, which is the sermon for next week, is the emphasis on Jesus' authority over religion, okay? So where did we leave off Where did we leave off? Well, Jesus left his home base of Capernaum, remember from last week. He began to preach and heal, cast out demons all over Galilee. So that's the region in Northern Palestine. And notice at the beginning of our story in verse one, he comes back to Capernaum. The people of Capernaum, of course, know him really well because he's been performing miracles and teaching and preaching and so forth. So it shouldn't surprise us that when it was reported that he was home, a huge crowd gathers at Simon Peter's house. In fact, it's so packed that even the doorway was overflowing with people. Have you ever been in a situation like this before? Maybe it was a party or a concert. You know, everybody's there for the same reason. There's something that's drawing people together. And in this case, of course, it's Jesus. But what is Jesus doing in this house? Notice he's preaching. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. As we learned last week, this is why he came. He came to preach to sinners. And then suddenly, Jesus' sermon was interrupted. You got to understand, first century Jewish houses were different than ours. Every house had a flat, roof and there were stairs and so family members you know could go and sleep up there or store things up on the roof but on this day notice there were four very faithful and determined friends right who started to dig down into the roof so imagine if we looked up and we saw some pieces of wood like coming through maybe pieces of wood and drywall coming through uh the ceiling like this whole sermon would stop right and we would try to figure out what is going on well that's kind of what happened in this scene and notice, after the five men find their way inside the house, as the man is lowered down, the paralytic, Jesus engages them. Look at verse 5. Notice, he sees their faith. He sees their faith. Now, this is probably speaking of all five of them. So, the friends plus the paralytic. These five men are there for healing. They believe that Jesus could do it. Friends, faith isn't a passive knowledge about Jesus. Faith is an active tris- trust that Jesus is sufficient to meet our needs. And this sort of faith, of course, you see is demonstrated here. This man has a need that only Jesus can meet. Now, what does Jesus do? Does he heal him? That's our expectation, right? That's certainly the expectation of these friends and the paralytic Again, he's probably healed dozens, maybe hundreds of people in Capernaum, beyond Capernaum. Jesus was famous for doing healings. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't do anything. He actually says something. Notice, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Is Jesus blind? Like, has Jesus totally missed the boat? What is he doing? I mean, he's got a paralytic in front of him. Why is he talking about forgiveness? And we know from the broader teaching of the Bible that human sin against God is the root for every kind of brokenness and suffering, right? So, paralysis or heart attacks or MS, these are all results of the fall. Sin is the root. Paralysis is one of the fruits, right? It's a symptom, but it's not the root. So, let's just say for a moment you go to a doctor, you've got really bad headaches. It's been three weeks. And the doctor runs some tests, and he comes back, and he lets you know, hey, I've got some great pain medicine for your headache. Here you go. You go home, and you feel great. You feel really, really, really good. But you think to yourself, maybe I should go back to another doctor, get a second opinion. You go back, and you do that. You go through a barrage of testing, comes back, and he says, you know what? I'm going to have to prescribe for you something more powerful than those medicines that you have because you have a brain tumor. And so he prescribes chemotherapy. And of course, you're thinking to yourself, like, what was up with that doctor? Like, he gave me a bad prescription. Like, it was kind of, it was making me feel really good, but it wasn't dealing with the root of the issue, right? You can address the symptom, but for lasting healing, you need to take care of the disease. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? Those four friends, their their single-minded mission was to get their friend to Jesus, right? To get him healed, to answer their friend's problems. But but when you come to Jesus, you get way more than you bargained for, right? Jesus looks beyond the obvious need to the ultimate need. This man needs his sins forgiven even more than he needs to walk. What about you and me? If you were brought to Jesus in some sort of desperate condition, maybe you find yourself in a desperate situation right now. Maybe you have a terminal illness or significant chronic pain or some sort of debilitating depression. Maybe, God forbid, you're an abuse survivor and you're healing from that. Maybe you're going through a season where your life circumstances are particularly harsh or painful or confusing. Friends, maybe you you so wish for financial stability, you so wish to be married, or to have children, or to have a new job, or to be just healthy and whole. And you tell yourself, if I could just have that one thing, if I could have just that one thing, I'd be okay. I'd be happy. Francis, your assessment of your greatest need the same as Jesus's? Your deepest personal need, according to Jesus, is to be forgiven. Because there's something worse than paralysis or diabetes, or disability, or even death. And that's hell, right? Eternal conscience torment. And Jesus knows this. He he wants to relieve all kinds of suffering, but especially eternal suffering. That's why he came. He came to forgive so that you and I can be right with God. I'm fascinated by how Jesus conveys forgiveness here because you don't just forgive anyone. You only forgive someone if they've sinned against you, if they've offended you, right? So let's just say Pastor Drew kicks Pastor Ryan in the shin. It would be strange. It would be strange if Pastor Dick then says, hey, Drew, I forgive you, right? You can't say that. Like he didn't wrong you. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you, right? Huh? What does that mean here? Well, think about this with me. After David committed his atrocious sins of adultery and murder, and was confronted by the prophet Nathan and he felt the, the pangs of conviction. He poured out his heart to God in Psalm 51. It's a beautiful Psalm. Right away in verse four, he says this, he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Friends, that's why when Jesus says this, he's actually saying, your sins have really been against me. You see, Jesus isn't just a miracle worker that we saw in chapter one. He's claiming to be God himself, even in the very act of forgiving someone. Friends, it's easy to hide our sin, isn't it? When we think no one sees, when we think that no one is impacted by what we're doing or saying, it's easy to diminish our sin when the horizontal consequences are minimal, or or maybe they're significant, but we can always kind of walk away from the relationship. But friends, you can't hide from Jesus. He knows, and he sees. But the beautiful thing is he offers forgiveness, right? You can't hide, but you don't have to hide. You can run to him for forgiveness. There's hope with Jesus. Well, the scribes pick up on the audacity of these claims that Jesus is making, and, and they kind of go nuts in verses 6 and 7. They, they ask these questions. Why does he, Jesus, speak like this? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like the irony is thick, right? They, they get it right, and they get it wrong at the same time. So that's the right question. It's just their conclusion is wrong. And of course, Jesus knows their heart. Look at verse eight. He perceives their hearts. Jesus sees, not as man sees. And notice how Jesus responds after perceiving their hearts. Verses eight through 11. He asks a question, interesting question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? On first glance, it seems easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's invisible, kind of hard to disprove. You can say, hey, get up and walk. But if it fails, then you're proven to be a farce, right? But on a deeper level, it's harder to forgive sins because only God can do this, right? And we see the punchline of this story in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says uh, the following, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Jesus will heal this man so that Jesus will heal this man so that they know he has authority to forgive. Like we said last week, these miracles aren't the point. They are the pointers, right? This story shows that Jesus didn't come merely to show God's power, but to bring God's salvation. I mean, think about this man. Think about this man. He, he leaves carrying his bed, but he no longer carries the burden of his sins on his back, right? What a powerful scene. And do you see how Jesus refers to himself in in verse 10? He he calls himself the son of man. This is the, the first use. This is kind of how he refers to himself throughout the gospel of Mark. This is the first time he uses it. And it's actually a title that comes from Daniel chapter seven. Check it out later, verses 13 and 14. It's this incredible vision that Daniel has where he sees these three evil monsters that are coming out of the sea, and they're going to come and attack God's people. And then he sees this final figure, one like the Son of Man, who's given dominion by the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And so it's this powerful scene. And so Jesus here is claiming, in no uncertain terms, to be this Son of Man figure. He's been given dominion, he's been given authority by the Ancient of Days, But what is likely a surprise to his listeners, including these scribes, is that the Son of Man begins his rule, not with swords and chariots, but by healing legs and forgiving sins. This was a mind-bending, category-defining moment for the people of Capernaum. There was something to see about Jesus that they should have seen, but did they see it? And people in this room are supposed to see Jesus, the son of man with authority, with dominion to forgive sins. I mean, behold, your God is here. He has come to save you. He has come to forgive you. They should have been tearing the roof apart to beg Jesus for this forgiveness and salvation. But they don't. The story seems to plead with us. Don't be like the scribes. Don't be like the crowds who fall short of faith. I mean, the amazement we see in verse 12 is great, right? The crowds are glorifying God and they're amazed by Jesus, but notice this isn't the language that Jesus uses for conversion, faith, repentance, following him. The crowds and the scribes need forgiveness more than they need anything else. Are they willing to believe and repent? Are they willing to follow Jesus? Are we? Are we willing to go beyond skepticism like the scribes or go beyond mere awe and amazement, perhaps holding Jesus at a distance and saying, hey, he's a great fellow, right? But I I think I'm gonna stay clear of actually following him. And there's one more takeaway that I want you to see before we move to the next story. It's something that J.C. Ryle actually points out. The lesson this man learned can make sense of seemingly senseless tragedies in our own lives. When, when something tragic comes into our lives, it's easy to say to God, God, I don't see the point of this. How many of, of you have said that before when something difficult comes into your life, right? I mean, all of us should have our hands up. Only three of us have. What's going on? But if we're honest, we, we've wrestled with that, right? But I want you to think about this with me. Think about this man's reaction perhaps months, years after this moment. He must have thanked God for his paralysis, right? Without it, he would have lived and died, perhaps in ignorance, perhaps never even meeting Jesus. Without his paralysis, he may have been a merchant or a shepherd traveling all over Galilee all his life, never brought to Jesus in weakness, never hearing the blessed words that he did hear, your sins are forgiven. And so, friends, we would say, he would say, I'm sure this paralysis was a blessing. It's the same for you and me, isn't it? How might that very tragedy in your life that gives you such an ache in your soul, how might that tragedy uniquely draw you to Christ in such a way that without that painful trial, you may not know Jesus today or you may not know him as well as you do. So Jesus is the son of man who forgives sins. Jesus is also the good doctor who mends sinners. So we turn our attention now to the second half of this passage, verses 13 through 17. Notice Jesus calls this fellow named Levi, the tax collector. And Levi calls a party with his peeps, who happen to be more tax collectors and sinners. And of course, the grumpy scribes question Jesus about this. But Jesus' answer in verse 17 is just absolutely devastating. Read this with me. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. We saw in the last story that Jesus is the doctor who has the right diagnosis and he offers the right medicine, right? He doesn't give Tylenol for the brain tumor, he offers forgiveness for sins. We saw that Jesus is also the doctor that has the right credential. I mean, he's God, he's the son of man. He has authority and dominion. I mean, we wouldn't take our high feverish child to some small, seedy, shady basement office with a doctor who's got bad credentials, right? You wouldn't do that. That would be unloving and uncaring. So here we see, friends, Jesus has the right diagnosis, the right medicine, and the right credentials. But who will Jesus see in his office. Who are Jesus's parents? Uh, parents. Patients. Who are Jesus's patients? Who's Jesus going to give attention to? And that's what this story is about. Jesus, notice, first pursues a tax collector. Um, and, and, and so, what are tax collectors? Is it like, a, like a, some sort of an IRS agent? Not quite. Uh, tax collectors are more like customs agents who charged fees to incoming merchants as they were traveling through, and they were hated by the Jews. Why were they hated? Well, because they were traders. They were sharks. They were employed by the Roman government. That's not cool. And they overcharged their customers. But, But look at what Jesus does with his tax collector. He calls him to be a disciple. I want you to put your eyes again on verses 13, in 14, as we see what's occurring here. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Do You see how the crowds and how true disciples engage with Jesus. The crowds come to Jesus. His true disciples follow Jesus. The crowds are gonna come and go, but a disciple's gonna follow Jesus as a permanent way of life, right? Jesus teaches the crowds. He teaches the crowds openly and often and frequently, but he calls disciples. Just like we saw last week, friends. This call by Jesus was not an appeal. It's not like a discussion he has with Levi. It was a command. It was a command. When the creator calls, the creation obeys. And just like last week, one of the things I think we're supposed to be reminded of today, this morning, is that we're supposed to see becoming a disciple is a gracious gift of God. It's a gracious gift of God. Well, there's this dinner party with sinners, right? So many of them belong to the same social stratum as Levi, notice. Uh, Maybe this was a conversion party. There's probably a mix of Jesus' disciples and sinners. Uh, It's one thing for Jesus to call fishermen, they were definitely not the first choice, and they were definitely kind of a surprising choice, but a, a traitorous tax collector? Like, that's, that, that's scandalous. You have to understand tax collectors were disqualified as witnesses in the courts. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were seen as a disgrace uh, um, to their families, and so a bunch of these moral outcasts are gathered and eating together. This is too much for any upstanding uh, scribe to, to be okay with, right? It's one thing for for, for one tax collector to follow Jesus, this looked like a moral pandemic, right? I mean, there are many tax collectors and sinners all together here. But I want you to notice something. It's so, it's so easy when we go to a, a passage of Scripture that is familiar to not see certain story details. And I want you to notice verse 15. Let me read it to you, and then I'll point out what maybe some of us over the years have missed. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. Watch this. For there were many who were following him. Okay, sometimes we, we talk about how Jesus, oh yeah, he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all these different sinners. And hey, maybe so, so, so should we, right? But I want, what I want you to see here is that many of them, many of these sinners were actually followers of Christ. Do you see that? It's not merely the friends of Levi who attended. These were outcasts and outsiders, and they've known sin and they've known social rejection. But now with Jesus, they they know forgiveness. They know his acceptance. They know his welcome. But those scribes, look at verse 16. Those scribes, what do they do? They blow the purity whistle on Jesus. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's a group of morally unclean, those who have defied the laws and defiled the traditions of the Jewish elders. They were hopelessly lost, as lost as a leper, as lost as an adulterer. So the scribes act like the ritual purity police, right? And Jesus now stands unclean. He stands condemned with them because he's entering into table fellowship with them. This was considered such a scandal, but not by God not by Jesus. He came to earth for such parties. The scribes think that the tax collectors and sinners are spiritually sick and that Jesus is catching their sickness. But hasn't, you know, Jesus read the laws? Hasn't he know, Doesn't he know the traditions? But what if Jesus isn't joining them as someone who is sick, but ministering to them as someone who heals the sick? When Jesus says I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners, he's talking about the uh, he's talking about those who think of themselves that way, right? So the scribes thought about themselves as righteous and put together and all set with God. They had no clue that they needed forgiveness. While these sinners that surround Jesus and hanging out with him and hanging on his every word, they knew they were sinners. The scribes think that they are the insiders and the sinners are the outsiders and Jesus is on the wrong side. But friends, who has the right to define who is inside and who's outside God's kingdom? Only God himself. And he's sitting there at the dinner table, isn't he? So a seismic shift is taking place in the religious order of first century Judaism. Messiah has come He's preaching the need to repent and believe and follow him. Some are rejecting him like the scribes, and they're actually on the outside. Others receive his teaching and and receive his call and find themselves entering his kingdom. How many of you remember um, the old football player? This is 1964, defensive end of um, the Vikings, Jim Marshall. Yeah, Jim Marshall, interesting uh, situation where the, the ball is fumbled He grabs the football and he runs to the end zone, except it's the wrong way, right? And it's a safety instead of a touchdown, right? Well, the scribes are kind of like this. They think they're about to score a touchdown. They think they've got Jesus. They're nailing Jesus, but they're running the wrong way. And sometimes we bear this worldly scribal attitude for ourselves. Friends, too often we practice a sort of spiritual malpractice, you know, we tend to think like the scribes that we might have the authority, the ability to diagnose our problems and cure our problems. We all know the weight of a guilty conscience. We long to get some relief from it, right? And so then we, we, we tend to favor certain voices, certain scribal voices out there or certain kind of false doctors that are out there. Hey, you're not that bad. You know, you mean well. You're certainly better than him. It could be a lot worse. You could be like her. Look at all the things you do for God. He kind of owes you. These are worldly, scribal voices that enter our lives sometimes, or false doctors that are prescribing the wrong things because they don't understand what the actual problem is. We like those voices because it makes us feel better, right? It helps us to sleep at night. But our ultimate goal isn't to feel better like the scribes, but to actually be better, right? to be healed of what is really ailing us. So friends, don't be your own doctor. Don't let someone else be your doctor, whoever that might be. Come to Jesus with your spiritual sickness. I mean, if you've got cancer, you try to fix it with what's in your medicine cabinet, it's not gonna work. If you've got pneumonia, but deny it and refuse to see a doctor, obviously that's not gonna work either. But if you're spiritually sick with sin, and if you recognize it, and you accept the devastation of it, the consequences of it, And then if you seek out Jesus, then you're onto something, aren't you? Perhaps you're a little embarrassed by your situation, you know, your education level, your Bible knowledge, your church track record. Maybe you've got a seedy past. You've done some things in the past that you don't really want to share. You've been to a few shady places. You have some shady friends. Uh, Whether it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll or egregious behavior in the so-called high places of this world, embezzlement, manipulation and deception and other sins that are associated with power. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you are a humble person, if you, if you know that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior, then you're in, you're in. Some of you were at our congregational meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago and we got to hear from one of our members, Nate Bancroft, who shared his just powerful story of where how God has saved him, miraculously saved him And he had a difficult past, but God has brought him into new life. So if today you've walked into this place and you feel weak, if you're feeling weak today, if you're feeling a real honest sense of your sins against the holy God, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You're in the right spot to encounter Jesus who calls sinners and men sinners. But if you walked into this place feeling like, hey, I'm all set, you know, like God owes you something, like you've got something punchy to offer all of the dirty sinners around you, well, then my prayer is that God would transform your self-awareness from self-righteous scribe to humble sinner. And What about faith church? What about our church as a whole? Will we be a hospital for sinners and sufferers? Will we be like, like the four friends here who help bring someone to Jesus, right? We can do that. We, we can do this. We, we, we can do it in our parenting. We can do it in our friendships. We can't save others, but we can act like these four men did. The people in Jesus' day who seemed most attracted to Jesus uh, were those who were sinful and unclean, and they knew it, right? And those who repulsed Jesus, repulsed by Jesus, excuse me, in the first century were the respected religious elite of the time. Seems like we've sometimes reversed that in the history of the church, right? The respectable elite are the most comfortable in our churches, while the down and out feel uncomfortable in our churches friends how can we make here at faith church how can we make humble sinners feel comfortable without compromising our biblical ethic and how can we make the scribes among us uncomfortable while still holding out in the grace of Jesus even to them right will faith church be a place where all kinds of sinners are welcomed with its former homosexuals or drug addicts the divorced, single parents, those who've had abortions, the gender confused, will all kinds of sinners, will all kinds of sufferers be welcomed in their weakness and in their desperation for Jesus here at Faith Church? Faith Church should not only hold out and herald the gospel of Jesus, but we should also display the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers alike, right? So it's interesting, this passage answers the question who can forgive, it answers the question who does he forgive, but it doesn't tell us how Jesus forgives. For that, we have to look further down the road in the Gospel of Mark. Everyone in these two houses, they knew just a little bit compared to what we know about Jesus and and answering that question, how does Jesus forgive? The doctor didn't just come to say, I forgive you. He came to pay the price for that forgiveness. I heard a story about a man and his two boys who were playing with a ball in the living room. And the very wise mom said, maybe you shouldn't do that. The husband kind of ignores uh, the situation, winks at his boys, and they keep playing. And of course, the lamp breaks, right? And now the dad's got some options. He could leave the lamp broken. He could make his boys pay for the new lamp, or he could pay for it himself. But every option has a cost, right? There's a price to pay. There's a cost to losing the lamp. You don't have light anymore. There's a cost to fixing the lamp, question is, who's going to pay? Someone has to pay the cost for our sins. Forgiveness isn't free. Are we saved by works? Yes. Yes, we are saved by works. It's just not our work. It's his work. Someone has to pay. And you know the answer to that. Jesus has paid it in full, right? He's paid it in full. Later in Mark chapter 10, he would say the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, friends, it's not your spiritual resume, your social engagement, your community service, your niceness that pays the cost of our sins. It's only the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He Washed it white as snow. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect on the passage.